0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: My whole career, I've always gotten well-intentioned advice from people uh, to stay away from things. Mostly it was, these things are career killers. Uh, when I was working on the Bush book... Uh, and I began to find this very strange Kennedy material. And, and I would show people my work as I was developing it, people I knew, people I trusted, who had worked for major news organizations or worked for them. And they would look at it and they'd say, boy, you know, you better watch your back. You know, this stuff is very, very explosive. You know, it could really, really cause you problems.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Russ Baker... Today's show, investigative reporting and mass media. Russ Baker is an author and an investigative reporter. He spent one and a half years as a correspondent and reporter based in the former Yugoslavia. He has written for The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Village Voice, and Esquire. He has also served as a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. In 2004, he devoted himself largely to researching stories that provided disturbing insights into the pre-presidential behavior of George W. Bush. Russ Baker is the author of Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, The Powerful Forces That Put It in the White House, and What Their Influence Means for America. Today we discuss the investigative work behind Family of Secrets, his new internet investigative journalism project, who, what, why, some of the stories he investigated for Family of Secrets, and challenges facing journalists. Russ Baker.
1: You know, I wrote this article called What Obama is Up Against, and it was about how people are unhappy with him. Right. And now we have this passage of the health reform, and a lot more people are, at least for the moment, happy with him. And so then the question is, what, for the long term, it Was this what Obama is up against, the problems with him? Are they irrelevant now? Has he passed this hurdle or not? And then we can get into my general theme, which is no president has passed the hurdles because the hurdles – we don't see the hurdles. We don't know what they are. And they're, they're, they're the hurdles that shape every presidency and they've shaped every presidency since at least World War II, and uh, and they shaped the Bush presidency, and we don't know what even happened there. We don't understand what happened there. We don't now, understand. You're
0: it. talking about the national security state yeah. and the in the institutions that, right. that stay put. Right. But I was also thinking when you said that um, a lot more people are happy with Obama, uh, but there's also a whole continuum of people that are even unhappier since this health care bill passed. You know what I mean? Uh, and then, of course, there's also the question of was he ever trying to do anything in the first place, or is he—I mean, obviously, he was hand-picked to lead the empire, so we can hardly figure that, you know, whatever. You know what I mean?
1: Are, are, you, are you taping this so you can potentially use this? Because I no, 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 no. Not. I'm
0: taping this, but I'm not going to use this. Well, why
1: not? we well, I mean, We're having a good conversation.
0: Oh, I see. Well, okay. I mean, maybe I could. Maybe I could. I mean, You just that expressed my
1: yourself well, and, you know—
0: Well, that's true. Maybe we should just start. Just keep it informal, yeah. Right,
1: right. Um— I, I think it's better. You see, I I thought you sounded very fluid there. So I I think sometimes when people prepare, they ruin stuff. <laughs> That's true too. Just just be like you're talking to somebody. That's right. Okay. I do. Yeah. Well, it's much more a, a warmer radio. You
0: but know. at least you it's know your time. material better than I know your
1: you, material. No, but you know whatever you want to say. You just said some interesting things, and then I respond. I don't think you. I, I know my material. You don't need to know my material. That's for me to know.
0: Okay. I know. I always have to, you know, in so many interviews, I have to know the person's material better than they do because they haven't read their book in a year and they can't. Re- they don't even remember their own stuff.
1: You should air this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> you should even air me saying you should air this. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. People well, love that. I'll, I will consider that, Russ. You know, listen, that's the great thing. It, by the way, if this get, gets aired, mm-hmm. I would just say to listeners, this is a great thing about Bonnie is that she's got this great personality. And even when she doesn't want to be doing something because she thinks she's not prepared, it's Still great, and it's great radio.
0: Oh, Russ, that's very nice of you to say. (laughs) Okay, well, let's just. uh, Russ Baker, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. It's always great to be here, Bonnie.
0: Well, good to see you in person for a change. One of your uh, latest articles, What Obama is Up Against. What is Obama up against in your opinion?
1: Well, he's up against a great deal, both uh, domestic and in terms of foreign policy. Uh, My article is focused on foreign policy and particularly on a historical track record where Many presidents, particularly since World War II, uh, have found it difficult to go up against what is commonly referred to as the a, a military-industrial complex. I think it's time we updated that term, but uh, military, industrial, financial, intelligence, uh, oil apparatus, whatever you want to call it, um, we don't see a discussion, we don't hear a discussion of this aspect of power very much. And if you look at the current discussion of Obama with the health insurance thing, it's, it's kind of presented as democracy playing itself out on the rude battlefield, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans and the hour-by-hour hour jockeying with really almost no consideration at all for uh, forces that are shaping that debate.
0: Well, right, exactly. And then there's also the question of, well, is there a debate? well, I mean, there's a public debate, certainly, and there are several dissenters. But then the question is, what is this bill all about? Because plenty of people think that it's not about health care at all, that it's about bailing out a bankrupt and dying insurance industry.
1: Right. And of course, the net effect of this very, very modest uh, advance, if that's what it should be called, uh, is that uh, they end up getting more customers uh, guaranteed by the government essentially. So, yeah, um, and and that's absolutely true that uh, when we talk about even individual members of Congress, we don't really discuss them in the context of the tremendous amounts of money uh, that back them, that keep them in power. uh, The interests that maybe shape their political rise and that have their ear, that kind of work, which really involves very diligent and deep investigative reporting, rarely informs the the news coverage.
0: Well, that's absolutely right, because even if that kind of reporting is going on, it's pretty hard to get it published, isn't it?
1: It's very hard to get it published. I
0: I think that you're in a position to talk about that. Now, with your terrific book, Family of Secrets, were you up against uh, a lot of
1: opposition to get your book published? The the resistance to anything that anyone has to say that is startling is tremendous. Uh, There is a lot of resistance to sort of meta-narratives that – try to contextualize why things are the way they are. That's really not what we do very well in the media. We have these very small bore stories about today's battle and so forth, the statements made and the votes taken, but not a lot of historical context and not a lot of discussion of Power centers today. Uh, just before I came over to Berkeley, I had lunch with somebody in San Francisco. Uh, also, somebody who's worked in journalism, and she, she's had the same experience where, when she was dealing with really substantive, very deep, and fairly dark material that she had developed, her own friends, particularly sort of people in the media, uh, would just kind of turn it off. It was it was too big for them, and it was too disturbing. And so the way we get by is we 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 work and we muddle it along on that kind of very modest level. You know, we're down in the valley and we can't see it from that sort of mountaintop view.
0: Well, exactly. And one of my big frustrations is that I'd like to read the newspaper every day, but the news is so compartmentalized. And so you get this, uh, uh, this happened, that happened. So somebody got shot, a bomb went off. There's no explanation of the causes or what is actually going on or any historical context or any anything.
1: That's right. Things aren't properly contextualized. And what I like to do. Uh, is to bring everything back to the basics, and when you do it, the problem is uh, uh, a lot of these media entities start feeling like they 're going to be accused of taking sides, and they see this as a bad a bad thing um, you know historically, if you go back and you try to examine why the United States has this so called objective school of journalism where he said she said on the one hand on the other hand, as opposed to the way it 's done in Europe and most of the rest of the world uh, we like to think uh, that this is because it is a superior system. But in fact, it was a system that was created by very wealthy people who owned these newspapers uh, and who frankly thought they could make more money if they didn't alienate their advertisers. And so they made a decision to say, we're not going to have a position. We're just going to say, we're just reporting uh, what people are saying.
0: Well, that's very interesting. Uh, You mentioned Europe as being different. What is different in Europe about reporting?
1: Uh, typically when you read a newspaper, you choose a newspaper that you think, uh, does the best job of explaining things uh, in a way that makes sense to you. And so if you are in Spain, um, you've got a whole gamut same thing in Italy of different papers in Italy you can read La Repubblica if you're on the sort of liberal or left end uh, and then you go over and you got La Stampa and uh, you know all of these ones and then way on the left you've got other papers and way on the right you've got these others and the idea is that the people who are working for them don't hide the fact that they've got a perspective on things uh, and, and still in all of those papers you, you can find some pretty good reporting you can find some reporters that are not they don't have an agenda per se they're, they're, they're digging but of course, they're digging informed a little bit by the kind of mindset that every human being has.
0: You know that is very interesting, Russ, because I think that we lose lose sight of that in this country because you can go from one city to the next and read all different newspapers, but they all have the same thing in them.
1: They do, and in fact. Uh, I was talking to somebody who used to work in television who was at one of the major networks who thought it was so eerie that every evening all three of the major networks had basically almost all the same stories. And they said, wow, how could that be? With a whole world of things, how could they all have the same stories? And and one of the reasons for that, of course, is they they may come off of the wires, uh, or they may come off of the lead of whoever is getting those stories first. And so uh, you see the editors as they're you know making up the paper, and they're trying to follow that lead because they think, well, those people have the stories, and they know what they're doing. And you know, who are we to start setting a whole different agenda of what's important?
0: And I think that that's why I think it's so difficult to learn things in this society. It really is tough.
1: It's very difficult. I mean, I experienced this. You mentioned my book, Family of Secrets. Uh, That was a case where I went in with a sort of simple and yet somehow profound question and no idea what I might find. Um, and, of course, I mean, the end result after five years was all this astonishing stuff. I mean, singed my eyebrows and apparently quite a few other people's. But that was because I, I went in there and I just said, I'd like to learn something here. And I, I didn't know what I would find. And and this is this is not common. You know, we don't do a lot of that. Certainly the, uh, the corporate uh, news bosses, they're not going to pay for people. They say, go out and just wander around and see what you come up with. I mean, that doesn't make sense to them. No,
0: and there's less less anymore, isn't there, Russ? I mean, it used to be, well, there were a lot more newspapers and there were a lot more reporters. Uh, a good friend of mine, actually a neighbor, uh, she's a journalist, actually used to be with the San Francisco Chronicle. She's lost her job uh, and she's lost her house. There's there's no jobs.
1: That's right. And so there's a whole new uh, structure that needs to be created. Um, I mean, that actually is why I've started a nonprofit Uh, nonpartisan investigative reporting site. It's called whowhatwhy.com. Our idea is very simple, and it's that uh, we uh, don't think that we should be funded by corporations. We're trying to avoid, if we can, taking any advertisements of any sort and uh, just to take uh, money from the public and from people who believe in the importance of information and news and see what we find. And again, we're emphasizing the nonpartisan because I tell everybody, I don't care what your issue is or what Side you take on the thing, you should be open to the idea of letting somebody go out and take a serious look at it. Let's say we go to the doctor. We we don't want a doctor who's got their mind already made up or who agrees with us. We want a doctor who has an open mind and some skills and goes and has a look and comes back and tells us some hard truths.
0: So now you set up who, what, why as a nonprofit, right. and then what are you doing? How are you going to support it with donations?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, I, I'm I'm traveling around the country talking to people. We're, of course, trying to talk to some individuals who may have more resources. But ultimately, there's a place on the site, it says support or something, and you go click on it and you can give $10, 20 $50 a month, which is really not that much money to to most people in America. And if we can get you know, a few thousand people to do that, we can build up a really strong staff and do terrific investigative reporting on a regular basis and, and go into those stories that, that most of the media will not touch. I'm speaking
0: with investigative reporter and author Russ Baker. Today's show, investigative reporting and mass media. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. This brings me to a question that I've had for a long time. When we last spoke, you mentioned, and it may even be in your book, Family of Secrets, that it took you five years to write Family of Secrets. And I've always wondered how you were able to support yourself for those five years. How did you do it?
1: It's, my friends and my relatives always ask me that. It, it's always been a struggle in my you know, quarter century of journalism. Uh, I've had several times where I was on some kind of a salary or, or, or a draw, but generally speaking, I've chosen the less traveled route, which involved uh, some sort of balancing of some kind of precarious things. And uh, uh, somehow I, I managed to, to get through. You, you cobble together a book advance and sometimes you get some speaking fees and, and what have you and savings and credit cards. And if you believe in something strongly enough, uh, somehow it's going to work out, you yeah. hope.
0: Yes, I can I can identify with you on that doing this show. Now, did you also like maybe get uh, paid work of writing a magazine article or two here or there, that kind of thing?
1: I actually did not. Uh, when I worked on the book, I did not. I mean, I was fortunate to have somebody working with me who, who put some resources and who believed in the project and was was, was uh, able to help in that regard. Uh, that was enormously valuable. Uh, and he's acknowledged there in the in the acknowledgments in the book. But, uh, you know, of course, all journalism has to be paid. For somehow. Uh, but we in in this country generally accept the idea that certain things should be borne by the public. Uh There has been at least something of a consensus that things like education and public highways and uh, public safety and what have you, that these are things that we all ought to share in the cost of. And, of course, that's now to the point where that's so under attack. I'm not sure that anything is sacrosanct. Uh, But the the notion of of the importance of information – um, not just that it's important in a kind of an abstract sense as part of a sort of a democracy, but in a very practical sense. If you don't have good information, it's actually dangerous. Uh, and one of the things about the Internet is it has both great aspects and very, very uh, troubling aspects. One of the troubling aspects is the speed at which uh, rumors and Totally uncorroborated and even falsified information can spread. Uh, And it's more important than ever that uh, we have certain news uh, outlets uh, populated by skilled, talented, experienced, careful, prudent. Uh, and courageous individuals that we can trust, we need those brands out there, and whether there ever existed any of those brands, those those are certainly uh, going down the tubes so rapidly there will be nothing in that regard if we don't have entities like uh, who what, why there that we can count on.
0: Right. And then with regard to the, good as- the the terrific aspects of the Internet is that it's harder for the mainstream media to put it over on people, at least people that are savvy enough to do their own work on the Internet.
1: Uh, that's true to some extent. Uh, however, I would disagree a little bit that I find that that because there's so much stuff out there, everybody picks whatever it is that supports their viewpoint. Uh, I find a lot of people who start uh, arguing with me where I've researched things extensively and they'll tell me that's not true. I've done my own research. But what they call research research consists uh, of a Google search, and that's not really research because you've got to know who wrote that thing that you read, what are their credentials, oh, you know, how carefully is that stuff documented. I mean, with Family of Secrets, because the material in there is so explosive about the Bushes, about the Kennedy assassination, about Watergate, I'm breaking all that new ground, I had to put in, uh, you know, there's more than 1,000 footnotes in there. And I think that that's crucial. A lot of things on the internet, there are no footnotes. <laughs>
0: With regard to Family of Secrets, how did you, and I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time, how do you do investigative reporting? Do you have to get on a plane, fly around, travel? interview people in person? Do you go to libraries? What is it exactly you do? How do you do it?
1: There are lots of different types of uh, what what is called investigative journalism. Uh, some people do almost all their work uh, digitally. They, they, uh, they use databases uh, and they crunch numbers or they find resources, you know, through searches. Sometimes they've got specialized search tools that the public doesn't have. Uh, and other people, of course, the old style is called shoe leather journalism. And that's what you're talking about, where you, whether you take a plane or a train or a car or a bus, you go and you talk to people face to face, you see how they live, you you verify it directly. And of course, when you talk to people face to face, you get a lot of good material you wouldn't get otherwise. So I absolutely do that. Um, For Family of Secrets, I traveled all over the United States. Uh, I even went briefly outside of the United States uh, to talk to people, to track people down, people who did want to talk to me. A lot of people who didn't, I'd wait them out and sort of corner them, and then then get the material. I also did a tremendous amount of archival research. I did go to libraries and archives to look at uh, old, forgotten documents and never known documents, Uh, and then I uh, did a tremendous amount of reading. I assembled a library of more than five hundred books. for this particular project, Family of Secrets, uh, reading many, many very obscure and even self-published books, where there were remarkably candid accounts by people who were sort of foot soldiers inside this kind of national security apparatus we so little understand.
0: And how did you uh, how did you discover these books that perhaps you didn't even know existed?
1: Oh, you know, there would be somebody. There was a fellow who. Uh, had worked for uh, George H.W. Bush and later employed George W. Bush. And I thought, there's nobody else in the world who's been in that position. And I wanted to know more about him. And I, I don't remember how I found that out. But once I realized that this person was potentially interesting, I discovered that he had written a book. And it, clearly the book was, I guess, for his family, for the grandchildren or something. But uh, in his in, in his town, Houston, one local bookstore carried copies. And I think you could even maybe get get a few of them online. And I I ordered the book. And by the time I went to interview him outside the United States at his uh, sort of plantation, he was sort of astounded at how much I knew about him. And I said, well, I bought your book. He said, gee, you, you can buy my book?
0: <laughs> well, now, who who is this? Can you oh, say? The, uh,
1: yeah, this is a fellow in Family of Secrets named Bob Gow, a very interesting uh, figure uh, who Um, uh, went to the same sort of prep schools as the Bushes did. And uh, even though he was very cautious, I think all of them are very cautious and they don't want to kind of, uh, you know, give up the game. uh, They also like to talk a little bit about some of the daring do. And, you know, in between his book and talking to me, there were certain things where he would admit that he had worked with the CIA, even though, his resume has him only being in private business, that some of those ventures and w- were, in fact, uh, a little bit more complicated, shall we say. And, and this is so important because then we begin seeing a kind of a secret history of the Bush family uh, as part of this apparatus of interconnected, wealthy families, uh, intermarried, doing business together, uh, and working on all sorts of different levels here and all over the world. This is sort of the precursor network that essentially Created the CIA and that and that backs American military intervention continuously uh, around the world.
0: Well, that's right. And the Bush family was there from the very beginning, and they continue to be there. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you discovered about the relationship between the Bushes and the Saudis, and most specifically the Bin Ladens?
1: Sure. Um... This is very complicated. Basically, what I focus on in... I'm trying to remember. I think it's about halfway through Family of Secrets. Uh, I was trying to understand uh, George W. Bush's military service, this debate about whether he had completed his service or not. I've got a whole bunch of chapters with, I think, the most definitive account ever of what really happened and the fact that it, he, he actually did just disappear from the military for two years, the role of his father in seemingly uh, helping cover this up. Uh, and then you see that the There was this other airman uh, by the name of James Bath, and he was his sort of sidekick in the uh, Texas Air National Guard. And uh, James Bath later on uh, becomes this very wealthy individual who's in business with uh, the eldest uh, half-brother of Osama bin Laden and the son of the wealthiest banking empire uh, in in Saudi Arabia. and I want to know how it happened that this guy from the back waters of Louisiana ended up in that position, and there's this whole sort of astonishing story of what what looks to be uh, him being basically paid off by the father George H.W Bush uh, for his help in covering up things with the son's uh, military service record. Uh, by uh, by Giving him this contract, this kind of back channel thing with the Saudis, uh, it's it's the most staggering stuff. If you made a movie of this, people would say, "Well, that's just preposterous." But basically, they're sort of privately engineering the foreign policy of the United States. People are getting rich at the same time, and you're forming these alliances uh, that that sprawl in all directions. You see the the circle in Houston getting rich off of this stuff. You see the Saudis benefiting. You see the the um, Americans providing the Saudi royal family in return the kind of security they need to stay in power, and then you see this money just gushing out in all directions. it shows up in iran contra it shows up in all of these uh, activities that were illegal and not sanctioned by the American people. so you see this tremendous meshing of of, of you know personal uh, benefits and and policy domestic international oil all of this stuff just coming together
0: yes, I'm glad you mentioned James Bath because that is very complicated and he's very he's a very interesting figure now wasn't he george w. bush's buddy in the Air National Guard in texas
1: right that's what I was talking about he He um, was in the unit with him, and um, when George W. Bush suddenly stopped flying and left the unit. Uh, many years later, it came out that, well, actually, it wasn't that big a deal because it, two guys had had uh, stopped flying and both for the same reason, they hadn't taken their flight physical, their physical exam. And the other, it turned out, was this James Bath. And then he was interviewed and he said, this is no big deal. This happens all the time. Well, I, you know, with all due deference to him, and he's a very nice fellow, but I mean, I've done my own research. And as far as I understand, it is not common at all. It's very, very rare. And, and when you stop flying well before you're supposed to. There's supposed to be a very high level inquiry to find out what happened because the government spent a million dollars training you as a pilot. There's a war going on. This was Vietnam at the time. You can't just walk away from this stuff. But uh, Jim's role essentially in that case was he stopped flying and they were able, therefore, to say, look, it's not just one guy, it's two guys. It, It means that it's no big deal. And again, I mean, this is only putting two and two together, but if, several years later, George H.W. Bush suddenly becomes the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and out of the blue, Jim Bath, supposedly completely unrelated, gets a phone call from a guy in Saudi Arabia, says, hey, I understand you've got a plane for sale. I'd like to buy it. I know it's a clunker, but would you fly it out here to uh, to Saudi Arabia, which he does, uh, and then they become good buddies, and then there he is in business with uh, uh, bin Laden and this other fellow from the, uh, from the banking family.
0: Now, is it... Is it true that James Bath then went on to become quite wealthy and powerful himself?
1: Well, I mean, Jim has, you know, he had this airplane brokerage. He was involved with real estate. He was involved with all kinds of things, uh, owning a parking facility at one of the Houston airports and uh, many, many other things. I mean, he did very well for himself. He's uh, hes definitely done very, very well as a result of these, these, um, these uh, relationships. You you know, Bonnie, I just want to say that these stories, which are not well-known, these narratives just don't get told. And we don't know anything about this. I I discovered in in the course of researching Family Secrets that we actually knew very, very little about George W. Bush after he'd been president for eight years. And we knew very, very little about his father, who was president or vice president for 12 years. Both of these men had secret lives. They were doing things that were very, very profound and very important. And we never heard about it.
0: Well, yes, right, and I think that one of the big things that you bring out in your book is, and we've talked about this uh, before a little bit. Uh, so many of these companies that both uh, the elder Bush and the younger Bush were involved in uh, couldn't really account for the influence and the money that they had. That there was obviously something else going on because, well, if you start with Zapata and work through all these oil companies, it's a complicated story, and you go through all the details, but. Uh, Uh, the businesses weren't big enough to account for the influence that these people had.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, one looking at them could reasonably conclude that they were nothing but intelligence fronts, that they were vehicles for for operations, basically, and not, not normal companies.
0: Well, exactly. I'm speaking with investigative reporter and author Russ Baker. Today's show, investigative reporting and mass media. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you mentioned uh, you were speaking about um, George W. Bush's uh, interrupted air guard. I guess he was supposed to be in for six years, and he served four, and then he disappeared. Now, what about Dan Rather? Now, CBS did an investigative, an investigative story on that, and Dan Rather, of all people, what, an anchor at CBS for decades, and he got canned over it?
1: Yeah, I mean, this shows uh, the the danger of um, what can happen when you pursue powerful people too aggressively, and I think this is also why it's not done very often. Um, the story they were looking at, that CBS was looking at, was a real story, and there were other news organizations, the same organizations that covered Rather's downfall, were trying to obtain the same documents that he had, and I suspect some of them, if they had been able to get their hands on them first, would have run with them, because they they described a situation situation. situation accurately. And so as a journalist, if you've already done enough research, interviewed enough people, and you've got a clear sense of what happened and (laughs) you discover original documents, you know, that confirm that, you're not going to right away say, well, these are are fake. Uh, There's some discussion about that they should have known they were fake or or, or whatever. But in fact, it's much more complicated than that. The, The bottom line here is this. Uh, I have increasingly uh, come to the conclusion that those documents were, in fact, fake, but that they were clever fakes that were designed to uh, draw CBS in, to get them to bite. And then somebody was ready on the other end, as soon as those things went on television, to immediately point out fairly minor anomalies that they said would prove that they were fake. And it worked beautifully. If if this were one of those kind of disinformation campaigns that intelligence agencies are always involved with, it's one of the uh, – textbook classics.
0: Well, yes, that's the way it seemed to me as well, that uh, that Rather was being set up. Now, let me run this by you. Does it seem like the object of setting Rather up with these fake documents was to put the story of Bush's uh, desertion of his military duty to bed once and for all?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, Carl uh, uh, Rove has his memoirs out right now, and uh, uh, it's interesting by the way how th- that book uh, is i don't know what is right now number 10 number 12 on amazon and the books by people who've done really scholarly the research with all this new information and much better writing are at number 5000 number 50000 100000 and so on but anyway in rove's book he kind of whitewashes all this and he says you know the rather thing we had nothing to do with it but it was it was helpful because it put to rest this ridiculous stuff we had nothing to do with the swift boat veterans uh media campaign against John Kerry. But that was helpful because it showed, you know, Kerry's dodgy war record. You know, absolutely. I mean, for people like him, strategists, the biggest problem they faced in 2004 was uh, that they were uh, running a president for re-election who had gotten the United States into uh, a big mess in Iraq, a war uh, prosecuted under totally misleading circumstances, Uh, And they had real problems. And then here was the idea that the man who had done all of this himself had skipped out of military service during another war. I mean, he couldn't have survived politically if that had ever gotten any serious uh, uh, traction in the media. And, And the third thing was he was running up against a war hero who was against... These wars, And so he, they had big problems. And then you see, number one, you Kerry's know, starting to go down. And you know, enough people said, by the way, that they had doubts about him that would have turned the election, uh, who would otherwise have voted for him. And then, of course, you had Dan Rather, the one national media figure who was – he his team, it was really uh, – was willing to pursue this story quite hard. In fact, he'd been somebody who'd given the Bushes a hard time in the past. And so I think they were gunning for him. But uh, it worked beautifully. Was it sort of a trifecta?
0: Well, isn't it astonishing, though, the control that the powers that be have over the media? Because maybe these tricks worked, but they worked because there's no independent media.
1: Well, uh, that's right. And, And really, if you look at where you get your information, the spectrum runs from uh, most of the internet today is opinion. And these big sites that people love to read, it's its mostly people writing opinion columns or uh, readers posting their comments, which is fun and it's interesting. Uh, but it's not the same thing as a kind of very professional, um, what, we, what we call with who, what, why, we call forensic journalism. Uh, and then uh, you've got a lot of entertainment stuff out there. A huge amount of the bandwidth is entertainment, sports, weather, sort of consumer tips, uh, and then just tremendous amounts of repurposed stuff. The same story somebody reported reconstituted again and again and again. Uh, And then you have this sort of dying mainstream media, uh, which still continues to cling to kind of very unambitious journalism, not touching any of the biggest issues. If you ask people, what are the biggest issues out there? Uh, You know, they'll say things like, I don't understand why. Uh, you know, if most of us are suffering economically and everything else, why nothing changes. And if we live in a democracy, that doesn't make any sense. If, if most of us want health care provided by the government and it, it can't be done and we live in a democracy, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, these great leaders, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X and so on, shot down. Every case, it's dismissed as a lone kook. You can't talk about that. Uh, 9-11 is, is not a su- – you know, this is a very controversial subject. But whatever the, the truth is there, obviously, we haven't gotten the full story. Uh, And again, that's something, you know, the mainstream media doesn't cover any of these things. They take very, very small slices. Here's a classic example. John F. Kennedy, uh, tremendous books out there. As you know, Bonnie, Family of Secrets has four chapters of all new information on the Kennedy assassination coming out of my discovery that George H.W. Bush, uh, who was in Texas uh, near Dallas at the, the day of the shooting, had these strange connections to figures connected to Lee Harvey Oswald and so forth people in the motorcade, and that he himself was having trouble explaining where he was and what he was doing that day. And, of course, I was intrigued. I looked into it, spent a lot of time in in those four new chapters. But not just me. There are other books, terrific books with all new documented information relating to the Kennedy assassination. All of us get zero or very, very little ink in the mainstream media. They won't cover it. And yet, just recently, and I just blogged about it today on Who, What, Why, there was this... um, uh, uh, there's a story. There's a new book coming out about letters, to, condolence letters to Jackie. And this book was re- mentioned or reviewed every big show. I'm sure she was on all the TV shows, and and they're all raptly interested in the letters by people who were sad about JFK's death. Uh, but but they're not interested in new information about the death itself. It's simply astonishing.
0: Yeah, it is astonishing. and But that comes back to how things are so controlled. I was curious to ask you, now, didn't you receive a lot of admonishments or advice from fellow writers or journalists about Family of Secrets, about what you should or could talk about? or what you should avoid? What kind of advice were you getting?
1: My whole career, I've always gotten well-intentioned advice from people uh, to stay away from things. Mostly it was, these things are career killers. Uh, When I was working on the Bush book, um, and I began to find this very strange Kennedy material, and – I think you know this. I I didn't know much about the whole JFK story and frankly was okay with the idea that Oswald had done it and had done it alone but I I had to start looking at this because of the Bush aspect leading toward November 22, 1963 And, and so I would show people my work as I was developing it. people I knew, people I trusted who had worked for major news organizations or worked for them and they would look at it and they'd say, boy, you know, you better watch your back. You know, this stuff is very, very explosive. You know, it could really really cause you problems. Uh, So, yes, I had that on that. I had it on the Watergate revelations, another area where I learned... That everything I thought I knew about Watergate was wrong, and again, it was involving the Bushes and their circle, uh, and these families, and this sort of military-industrial uh, complex that Eisenhower warned us about, but that we've never really gotten a firm grip on. Uh, so I've had this continuously over the years on on, on big subjects, and obviously nine eleven, which I you know I'm not somebody who considers himself an expert on it, but I do know that we get. Regular bits and pieces coming out showing that uh, that uh, a lot of people feel they haven't gotten the full story, including we can talk about that the the members of the nine eleven commission themselves saying that.
0: Right. Well, now uh, you were mentioning to me an ACLU lawsuit with regard to the nine eleven commission and Cheney's involvement there. What what about that?
1: Uh, documents have been sort of dribbling out now for a long time, and recently um, they obtained some documents pertaining to a request from uh, the 9-11 Commission to interview the, um, the detainees. Uh, the 9-11 Commission, um, put in place by President Bush, uh, supposed to try to figure out what had happened and what had gone wrong, uh, had every reasonable uh, expectation that they would interview some of the detainees to find out what they knew and um
0: and you're talking about the people what at Guantanamo that they'd picked up or uh, Abu may-
1: Ghraib all the all these kind of places Bagram and so forth plus yeah i mean i don't know if they could have gotten to the secret the, the the black sites or not but certainly yes detainees at these at these locations and so they put in a request they wanted to interview them and what happened was this request ended up apparently uh with Cheney's office and i believe it was David Addington uh his counsel who Uh, Marked up – there's a document that actually got back to – I believe it was to the ACLU – marked up by Addington where he's sort of circling things and expressing concern about it. And then what happens is a letter comes back to the 9-11 commission signed by – uh, Cheney, the CIA director, and the uh, uh, Secretary of, um, the, the Attorney General, rather. Uh, and they're all signatories to this letter, but it's clear they didn't write it. They were just asked to sign it. It came out of Cheney's office, and it said, uh, do not ask to see the detainees. In fact, it actually uses a phrase. It says, uh, requesting to see the detainees would be crossing a line that should not be crossed. And of course, this this letter just came out, was just made public. It's a letter from 2004. Uh, they said that there was a line between uh, getting information and uh, protecting Americans. And they felt that interviewing them would somehow harm Americans. But of course, how would it harm Americans? Back then, I think the key thing is that back then, we didn't know anything about the torture. And it's very, very likely that they were concerned that if uh, they interviewed the detainees. They would learn that these people were being tortured. And, of course, there would have been an uproar, which there was eventually. I'm speaking
0: with investigative reporter and author Russ Baker. Today's show, investigative reporting and mass media. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I just realized a few days ago when we were uh, uh, talking about something, Russ, that, of course, you live in New York City. And you were there on September 11th, 2001, and you actually went and were at Ground Zero. And so you're one of the few people that I've ever met that was actually there. Could you tell us uh, what went on that day? Like, in your own experience, what was that day like for you?
1: Well, it, it it began sort of strangely and might not have begun uh, the way it did, and I might not have been there, but for the fact that uh, I had just completed some other projects, and that particular morning, I thought I'm going to do something I almost never do, which is to sleep in. And so I decided to sleep in, and I remember sleeping uh, in my uh, apartment uh, there in Manhattan, and... Being awakened by the very loud sound of of a jet engine going overhead, and I was struck by that because you don't usually hear jets going over Manhattan, at least not uh, the, the, the the ways that they typically come into JFK or Newark or something. They're not typically going right over those buildings, and it was very very loud. Anyway, that woke me up. I, I didn't know what to make of it. I was a little bit rattled, uh, and I remember turning on uh, our local twenty four hour TV news channel. I think maybe just to check the weather. And that's when I got the first report right as it was happening that a that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. Uh, and then seeing uh, the footage um, a little while later of the second plane hitting, at which point it was very obvious to me that there was something serious afoot. Uh, and I, you know, I pulled on my jeans and I remember just racing down. Uh, to the World Trade Center uh, just to try to see what the heck was going on, and uh, right around that point, I uh, made contact with the Los Angeles Times. Uh, the Times, who, for whom I'd written before, uh, basically contracted with me on the spot to to report for them. I'm independent, but you know I work oh. for papers, and so uh-huh. I was working for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and and uh, got down there. Uh, when I got down there, there was total chaos, uh, and there was this tremendous cloud. You couldn't see anything. You didn't know what had happened, and that was right as the building buildings uh, uh, were collapsing.
0: Well, now, what part of Manhattan were you living in and when you got to ground zero, had one or both towers already uh exploded or collapsed?
1: Well, they they this was happening as I was getting down there. See, I didn't know that because there was so much confusion and and this this tremendous, you know, sort of mushroom cloud shooting across and people stumbling and Coughing, and they were bloody, and so you didn't even know what was happening. You just—I remember as I was trying to head in, and all these emergency vehicles and uh, uh, law enforcement officers heading by and saying, "Get out of here!" They were just yelling, "Get out of here!" And I was going against them, and I was going in while everybody was going out. I began trying to help a few people because at first I thought it was just a few people, and again, we didn't know what had happened. And pretty soon, we started getting word that these buildings had collapsed, and of course, that was just so so mind-boggling. And then, and then later on. Um, uh, As they pushed us away, I managed to sneak back a little closer and then at one point was standing uh, very close, standing in front of what was called Building 7. Uh, of the World Trade Center, a building that had not been hit by the planes. I was standing in front of it, uh, and I was talking to uh, someone at the Times, uh, calling in my reports, uh, and I can't remember how it worked. I think he was typing it up, or maybe I was talking to the editor, and someone else would type, you know, he'd put the, me through, and they'd type up the stuff for the articles that we were all contributing to. And right while I was standing there and talking to this man, Building 7 began collapsing in front of me. And of course, I was incredulous because how could this building collapse? Hadn't been hit by anything. You couldn't see. Uh, anything significant going on there there wasn't uh, I don't even remember seeing flames or anything uh, the building just was standing and then suddenly as they described it, pancaking down in this incredibly neat manner and I mean everybody was just mortified and amazed and I told this uh, editor and he said oh my god how could that be and I I don't know I don't know. Well,
0: now, isn't that interesting? Because so at the, at the time that Building 7 was collapsing, you were actually watching it.
1: I was standing right in front of it talking on the phone to this newspaper. Yeah.
0: And at that moment, did what was happening seem strange to you?
1: Oh, it just seemed crazy. But you have to understand this was in a morning where already everything seemed so crazy. It seemed crazy that uh, somebody could or would want to hijack a plane and kill themselves and everybody aboard. It seemed crazy that they would want to hit the World Trade Center. It seemed crazy that they could hit the World Trade Center. It seemed crazy that two planes could hit the World Trade Center unobstructed. Uh, And then when it became clear that those buildings came down, that seemed crazy that a plane could uh, bring a whole building down from hitting it high up. So by the time this happened, it was just more of of an ongoing parade of surreal images.
0: The reason I ask you that is because for me and for so many people that I've talked to, uh, even people who have done a lot of uh, uh, research into the physical evidence there, uh, I watched those uh, towers come down on, on television, of course, like so many people did. But for some reason, I just was sort of, uh, I wasn't thinking at the time. Like I wasn't thinking, well, gee, that couldn't be happening or that doesn't seem right. Do you know what I mean? So that's why it was, it was interesting to me that when you said you were watching the collapse of Building 7, that it actually occurred to you at the moment that that looked pretty
1: strange. It, it did look pretty strange. Um, I didn't know what to make of it. It, it. People were exclaiming, obviously, and talking to each other and saying, what What could this mean? But you have to understand we live in a world where so many things don't make any sense. There are so many things that don't make any sense. And even the way and the reason I began doing uh, the research for Family of Secrets, it didn't make sense to me that George W. Bush had even become president of the United States in the first place. If you compare him to all the presidents through the sweep of American history, even the ones that I remember as a kid, they used to make fun of you, know, Millard Fillmore, and the you know the least illustrious people. I mean, I think they all would hold up pretty well against him. And so even that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's so many curious things, and and then you look at stories like uh, uh, our governor of New York, former governor Elliot Spitzer, uh, being taken out in this sex scandal, and uh, that was, you know, right at the time that he was leading calls for the the states to begin asking questions about uh, the the financial situation, the collapse. He was involved with all sorts of very aggressive investigative things.
0: You mentioned Elliot Spitzer and the fact that that the sex scandal broke out just as he was doing this investigation, really going uh, after the financial system. But it also seems to me that uh, they've got something on everybody. And, And of course, have you done any reporting on how Congress is controlled? Because it seems like, it, you know, if it's not Elliot Spitzer, it's somebody else who is biting the dust because of some impropriety. And of course, I suppose we all have something that uh, we would rather not be public about.
1: You know, I, I remember somebody in Washington. Uh, asking me this question and I I, I can't remember exactly who this was but it was someone of some note somebody very well connected fairly high up and this person said ask me do you know what the number one industry in Washington is and I thought lobbying is it no 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 I said what is it and he said sexual blackmail and this is very interesting because there are more things about Watergate that I don't get into in the book that have elements of sexual blackmail. Uh, if you're trying to think of how do you get to somebody, I mean, there are only a few ways you can get to them. There's a, you know, there's money, and then there's, um, you know, the honeypot, and and so this is a logical uh, recourse. And if you're in public life. All you've got is your reputation, and yet you're under a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, you may be away from your family for great stretches of time. You're, you're living a life which is not particularly healthy. Uh, and so um, uh, there are all kinds of possibilities for things to happen, and you you can't really survive these things.
0: Have you continued to follow the Bush family now that your, your book, Family of Secrets, has been completed? Um, What's going on with the Bushes now? Are they still busy?
1: They they really are. In fact, one of the things I try to emphasize about Family of Secrets is our initial reaction when George Bush left office was people said, you know, that's over. We've moved on. But what you learn from this research is that we haven't moved on, that that the elements in in play there were in play for – decades and are still in play, very, very much in play, uh, that there are all kinds of programs we don't know anything about that still continue to function. In addition, you have uh, Jeb Bush, and Jeb Bush is very, very visible. Increasingly, just every few weeks, you can see this ratcheted up to another level. He's out there speaking everywhere. He's being uh, commented upon favorably by the media, and I think it's becoming increasingly clear that he would like to run for president of the United States— In 2012. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these families are in the picture and they want to stay in the picture. And we increasingly, this country, do have these sort of dynasties. And, you know, the Bushes, uh, people don't realize how far back they go. In Family of Secrets, I actually try to uh, explain that, you know, you've got W, you've got the father, you've got the grandfather, Prescott Bush, who was much more important than people realized. He had he had Dwight Eisenhower's ear. He was his main golf partner. I actually have a quote in the book where he, you know, somebody said, did Eisenhower know about such and such a policy, make a decision. He said, no, why would he? He didn't know about those kind of things. You know, we took care of that. You know, so, I mean, all this discussion about what the president does ignores or basically is unaware of all of these other elements, all these other players that are shaping things. Um, uh, A business partner of Prescott Bush's, uh, Robert Lovett, was the architect of the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Harry Truman, uh, after he was no longer president and 30 days to the day after JFK was assassinated, he wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post in which he basically said he regretted creating the CIA. Now, why did he say that 30 days to the day after Kennedy was shot? I think there was a reason for that. He was trying to send out a message. He said, you know, they got involved in all kinds of unauthorized things, things I I never approved. Um, and then, you as I say, you find the Bush's uh, investment banking firm creating this entity, the CIA, which uh, uh, operates completely essentially unexamined, unscrutinized today, uh, all over the world. We have no control over what it does. We don't have any real understanding of it. And so I guess what I'm saying is the Bushes, these kind of dynasties, these families have always uh, played a major role in shaping our country in seen and often in unseen ways. And if they can continue to do it, they're absolutely going to.
0: You talk in The Family of Secrets with regard most specifically to the Bush dynasty, that so much was hidden about uh, George H.W. Bush. But then when we get to The son, George W. Bush, uh, his presidency was very involved in active destruction of records and secrecy and quashing uh, FOIA requests, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about the destruction of records and the secrecy in the Bush administration and then how to do investigative reporting when so much of the information that people seek is hidden?
1: Right. Well, first of all, the suppression of information and destruction of records began long before uh, George W. was in office. Records pertaining to his military service, pertaining to things relating to the father— they vanished continuously over the years. Uh, microfilms were accidentally destroyed and so forth. Everything was accidental. Uh, the moment he got into office, that uh, George W. got into office, he began taking measures to suppress information. It had a kind of a police state feeling. They were uh, making it very difficult for people to get information under the Freedom of Information Act. It was much easier under Clinton than under under Bush. Uh, and then he began, under the Presidential Records Act, changing the rules for for when and how presidential records could be released. And it basically allowed both former presidents to veto the release of their own records and sitting presidents to veto the release of prior presidents' records. It was all headed in one direction, which was a kind of a shutdown. And this is way before September 11. Uh, and then you saw, of course... After that, everything got ratcheted up and you saw all kinds of records being destroyed. And I mean, some of the most famous cases are the uh, the missing emails, huge amounts of email traffic relating to uh, inquiries uh, about the politicization of the United States Attorney's Office, the improper uh, effort to manipulate those people to, to take political decisions. Uh, but you saw many, many examples. There was uh, the uh, the destruction of these CIA videotapes of torture. And that's a very interesting case because they were so concerned about that that they uh, we don't even know what the truth is to this day. And we don't know for sure that there were videotapes. We don't really know how many there were and we don't know what was on there. But what they did was they leaked a story. First, the story uh, was that... There were several tapes, and these tapes had been destroyed. And there was a brief hullabaloo about that, and then it subsided. And then uh, a couple of years later, a year and a half, two years later, came out the story that it wasn't a couple of tapes. It was something like 92 tapes. That's so staggering. What on earth could there be where there's 92 separate tapes of of torture? And then there's this question of what was the purpose of the tapes. There's some suggestion that they may have actually been training tapes where they were designed to show other people uh, how— to uh, to carry out these, uh, these, what really are tantamount to torture. I don't know what else to call them. And so that's another example of that. But what we desperately need is we need to get to the bottom of all these things. Uh, President Obama has said he wants to move on, not back. He doesn't want to look into uh, these things. But we are able to take them on. And we are the people. And um, this is why I started Who, What, Why? Who, What, Why dot com, a nonprofit, nonpartisan investigative reporting news website. We're just in the early stages. Uh, This is a sort of a communitarian effort. We're looking for people to get involved. Obviously, we need uh, financial help, um, and people can go to the site com. But also, we need story ideas from people. We need uh, experienced investigators, writers, and editors who think that they can participate in this and contribute to get involved. Uh, we need... Probably the most important thing of all simply is people's interest. And I can't emphasize enough that we're actually in a pretty good period right now because thanks to the Internet and unless somebody uh, figures out how to pull a plug on it, uh, the Internet is a tremendous, tremendous tool. Uh, It can be used for bad and it can be used for good, and I'm hoping it's going to be used for good. I'm hoping that what we will continue to see is more and more people Uh, using the Internet to spread the word, to spread the truth. And really, all you have to do is if you see something you like, whether it's on Who, What, Why or elsewhere, uh, that you forward it to everybody that you know. Um, You're educating people. And the more people who get educated, the more possibility there is that things can change. Uh, There are a lot more of us than there are of them. Uh, there are really very few of them. And th- what they do is they manage to control the levers of the information machine and to manipulate a lot of people into believing false things. And we're all about giving people the right information and empowering them so that we can take back our democracy. It's really a very exciting time, and I'm, I'm quite hopeful uh, for the next few years. Russ Baker, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: I've been speaking with Russ Baker. Today's show has been investigative reporting and mass media. Russ Baker is an author and investigative reporter. He has written for The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Village Voice, and Esquire. He has also served as a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. Russ Baker is the author of Family of Secrets: The Bush Dynasty, the powerful forces that put it in the White House, and what their influence means for America. Visit Russ Baker's website at www.russbaker.com and www.familyofsecrets.com. He is the founder of the Real News Project, a nonprofit investigative reporting website at www.whowhatwhy.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628.
2: Hey, yo! Revolution, which is the evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life.